We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith Podcast. Alex Hurst here, and you're going to listen to me chatting to Guardian football journalist and author Daniel Taylor about his brand new book on King Kevin Keegan, My Life in Football. We hope you like the show. Um, This show is sponsored by our patrons who pay £5 a month for loads of extra shows. You don't have to sponsor us for £5 a month. We'll always keep this podcast free. But in doing so, you get all the extra podcasts on your Castle United. And even if you don't want to listen to extra podcasts, all the money we spend goes back into the podcast um, in improving the quality of the show, uh, the calibre of the guests, and all sorts. So I'm going to leave you now um, with my chat with Daniel. Links in the description of this podcast um, of where you can buy the book and, and a couple of good deals, I think, are fine. So have a look there. Um, uh, Daniel was a, an absolutely brilliant, engaging uh, guest, and I'm sure you'll take that from uh, from this chat. And, uh, you know, we're on at TF Weekly Pod on social media. If you want to leave any feedback or discuss anything, uh, I'll stop talking now and leave you with Daniel. I mean, this is this is Kevin's life story, really. So, so this, this is a part of his life story I mean we did we tell it in at length uh, I think there's probably the book's about 125,000 words and this this um, this section of his, uh, you know this sort of unhappy second spoilers manager at Newcastle I think it's I think it accounts for about 18,000 words of those but that still leaves over 100,000 words on the other part of his life and you know in the I mean the, the irony being that in the middle of the book there's four chapters on the sort of you know much happier times at Newcastle that um, you know I suppose that's probably my my one slight frustration obviously everyone's so I, don't get me wrong I completely understand why but everyone's so fixated on what went wrong the you know the kind of this culture of you know backstabbing and undermining that he had to endure and um, in a second spell now I, I completely understand why everyone is very um, very interested in that but you know the, the there's also, you know, much happier times in Newcastle. You know, we've tried to tell that story um, at length. And uh, and also just his life story. I mean, his life story is incredible. You know, the guys won two Ballon d'Ors. And I almost had to kind of shake that bit out of him. Because he never, you know, he, despite his achievements, very, very kind of modest modest guy in, in terms of those realms. You know, um, he's got an OBE and, you know, he won't use that after his name. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, well, he's the only English footballer in history who's ever won the European Football of the Year twice so I think that tells you what he was like as a player as well as a, a manager and a personality So how, how has this come about was it you know was it always a, a passion of yours to get this good or did, did he approach you like wh- where do, why do you think now is the time that, that Kevin wanted to tell this story Well I think um, 
I've never met Kevin until until this uh, project came up, basically, and it's as simple as that. Um, you know, he, he he came to my literary agent because, um, and basically, I've been speaking to my to my sort of agent. You know, I've written a few books before, and I, but I've never written uh, or I've never ghostwritten rather a um, an autobiography, and so my agent was aware that I, I wanted to do one, and and then we just heard from Kevin, and Kevin's um, you know sort of a couple of people around Kevin that he was keen to do one really and I, I just think um, I mean he brought a book out in the 90s so obviously he's got you know 20 more years to go at um, I, I don't detect any desire on his part to return to to football and I think he was he was so sort of saddened by what happened last time that that it kind of uh, you know sort of made him feel that you know the sport that he'd sort of grown up you know loving and he still does love it you know he still watches the games and and everything like that. I mean, he doesn't obsess about it like perhaps I do. <laughs> but you know, he's, whenever I see him, we always sort of we always end up talking about whatever match was on TV the, the, the night before or something. But I certainly think his, the experiences in Newcastle, second time round as manager, um, maybe sort of told him that football had changed and, and did he really want to be in the industry as it was if, if some of the things that happened to him. And one thing I should say, really, I mean, people obviously have seen what's what's been serialised, but that really is only scratching the surface to the full story. Obviously, the Times have got their own space constraints and, you know, they, they can't produce two chapters in full. Um, but as I say, I mean, there's, there's something like 18,000 words in the book on, on that era. And um, and obviously, the Times, you know, probably condensed it into about a tenth of that size. So so there's still sort of another 90% of that story to be, to, you know, to be told in the, you know, in the book. So that's a slight frustration, but obviously, you know, don't get me wrong, I think the Times has done a really nice job with it, and, you know, we're, we're, we're pleased that the story's starting to come out, really. And obviously, because of the serialisation and, and the fact yeah. that, you know, I mean, Kevin Keegan isn't just, everyone listening to this, I presume, well, most people listen are Newcastle fans, but he's also massively popular um, in, in other parts of the country as well, so I, I presume you've, you've, you've had to try and find a balance of not just talking about the bad times at Newcastle or the good times at Newcastle, but like you say, a, a rich and varied career that, you know, I, I presume this well, is going to get this yeah, interest I mean, in the Germany. The full, the full life story, really, and I mean, not just popular in, in, in England, you know, I mean, he, he regularly sells out on sort of talking events in Scandinavia and these mass, you know. I mean, a guy from my work the other day said to me, you know, you, you wouldn't believe, you know, a guy from my work who lived in Germany said he wouldn't believe how many, how many people there are in Germany walking around with the name Kevin, you know, <laughs> in, their, in their 40s and, you know, because basically, you know, when he went over to Hamburg, he, he, you know, he was, he was a huge star and, you know, I mean, part of it's been quite educational for me, you know, in terms of sort of learning a bit more, learning about, a lot more about Newcastle, to be honest, is one of the things I've enjoyed, um, but also Liverpool, you know, Bob, uh, Bill Shankly, sorry, and, all those um, years that Kevin spent there, you know, he, he won pretty much everything at Liverpool. And I suppose the difference between him and the other Liverpool players was Kevin had Kevin decided to leave. You know, not many people would actually, you know, if, if someone left Liverpool in those days, it was normally the club's decision. But Kevin, you know, being the guy he is, he wanted to go and experience what, what it was like abroad. And not only that, but he made a fantastic success of it. You know, he was named German Man of the Year. <laughs> um, so. You know, the, the guy's life story is... Inc- I mean, I, I, I've joked with him in the last few weeks that really we could have probably done with two books. And, um, <laughs> I mean, Bobby Charlton told his autobiography in, two, in, in the space of two books. And I really think that Kevin could have done the same, really. You know, there were, there were quite a lot of episodes that we, we both of us would have, would have liked to have told in even more detail. Yeah, and, I, I mean, I presume... 
Kevin was was uh, was great was great to work with. When you were working with him and, and writing the book, did, was he was it, was it hard for you to try and get get aside or around the the modesty of the man to try to try and get him to talk up the, the the achievements? Because like you say, twice European footballer of the year. I mean, he, glittering success at Liverpool silverware wise, and then Newcastle, which we'll come on to, is wasn't can't be measured in trophies. I mean. Personally, I don't think trophies are that important in terms of what he achieved in Newcastle. But was he was he kind of forthcoming with all of these things? Was it a little bit difficult to to get out the the, the, well, the immense he's achievements? A, he's, a, he's a great storyteller, and I mean he'll tell stories. But what I'm, what I mean is he, he, he there's a, there's a, there is a degree of modesty with it as well. It's probably you know I'm the journalist. I'm sort of trained to ask the question. So so I think if we hadn't mentioned the fact that yeah you know at some point you were also given an OBE, I think he probably. <laughs> probably would never have mentioned it you know it's me probing with those questions that brings the answers but i mean we all know kevin is a you know fantastic um storyteller you know great great anecdotes always opinion on on everything football wise so so for me um you know i got into football journalism to basically you know to well a because i wasn't going to say football i suppose but (laughs) but you know i wanted to be a smallish part of the football world and so to actually um, I mean when I was first offered it my first thought was well what a great offer but that could be logistically a bit of a nightmare because I live in Manchester and I thought I, I just presume Kevin Kevin was still North East based but he, he actually lives about 10 minutes drive from me so that, oh, that, wow. that made things you know so much easier basically I could just pop down to his house in, 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 a, in a short drive so um, and you know just Sort of, we started. I mean, we first of all we went to a couple of restaurants in the village where he lives, and we did it that way. But in the end, it sort of morphed more that I would just drive out to his house, and we'd sit in his front room and um, put the tape on, and then Jean, his wife, and you know, lovely lady, amazing family, very very strong and uh, close knit family. Jean would sort of just bring in an endless supply of you know pieces of toast and cups <laughs> of tea and. While we sort of sat there, and someone said to me at the start of the process, you know, once you speak to somebody for more than two hours, you know, you get tired, they get tired. You know, it's kind of there was a kind of a bit of a peak time where you know you kind of realise it's probably time to call it a day. But there were times with Kevin where we were sort of sitting there for three and a half, four hours, and then it, it, you know you get the feeling that he would have sat there even longer and chatted. So, um, so for me, you know, it was quite educational and. You know, just to sit with someone that's experienced what he has, and to listen to listen to the man, and basically learn from the man, I suppose as well. And um, you know, I'm just glad that um, you know I was I was I could help him put it together in uh, you know in a book form. And I presume you you're not just coming to Newcastle at the Sage, which is a sold out event. Um, you're you're around the country. Um, has, has there been much demand for, to, to to hear Kevin talk? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had a non-stop stream of requests from journalist mates as well, sort of just trying to get, um, see if, you know, see if Kevin could do any interviews, and it's been a bit of an eye-opener in terms of the world he lives in, you know, just, just how constantly in demand he is, and, um, you know, so you, you can't quite understand it unless you're actually in that world, really, and, I, you know, I've only had a small taste of it, but, you know, so, you know, so many people, you know, he's had so many requests, and... Ideally, we'd, you know, you don't want to disappoint anybody, but equally, the man has to live. You know, he's, <laughs> he's doing a he's doing a two two week book tour. Um, the Newcastle one's a bit different because obviously that's going to include the big event at the Sage, um, which is say did sell out, which is which is great. But you know, he's doing Southampton, London, uh, Manchester, Liverpool, um, 
you know, so uh, it's quite tiring, you know, sort of, you know, we'll, we'll get back, we'll get back from that event in Newcastle, I imagine, in the early hours, and then, it, and then the following lunchtime he's got to be in Liverpool to do another event, and, you know, it can, it, it, don't get me wrong, I'm, I know he enjoys it, but it can also be quite sapping, those sort of, so it's quite, quite a gruelling couple of weeks he's got ahead, he's doing interviews, he's, I think he's appearing on, you know, one of the, one of the, I think it's the BBC sort of, um, you know, the breakfast TV shows, and, um, so you know he, he's 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 been pulled around left right centre for a few weeks, but obviously that's that's just you know part of the book writing process. I mean, let's 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 move things on to Newcastle then. Um, yeah. uh, positives first. Um, you know, uh, people listening to this podcast know where me and the lads who do it come from and, and, and how old we are. And we, we we were, you know, Keegan's playing days at Newcastle were a bit before, well, definitely before our time. But um, we did a dangle. We did like an audio documentary, just interviewing people about what Kevin Keegan meant to them, um, and, and the story and, and the stories that we got back about how influential he was as a player at Newcastle, not just a manager, and how he. He kind of almost came to this meandering second division club um, that wasn't going anywhere. The stadium was falling apart um, and, and transformed the club within two years of arriving with Terry McDermott as well, playing alongside him um, to, into a, you know, a, a division one established club. Have you managed to, to spend a like, good time in the boot kind of telling that story? Because if you speak to people of maybe over 40 and over in Newcastle, you know, his playing days are, are not to be underestimated and how he and how like one player transformed the football club. It's not really something that I can think of a, a modern day equivalent where one player going to a football club transforms it as much as he did Newcastle United in the early eighties. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I mean he, he talked about it at Lenf really and you know, when when he you know, dropping down the division it probably cost him his England career as well because um you know, he never he was never chosen again basically. And I think sadly and the the sort of strange thing is bearing in mind how much the two men have got in common. You know, there was always, um, well, he, he and Bobby Robson, you know, two great Newcastle, um, you know, legends, basically. You know, they, they had, you know, really big difference of opinion because of that. And Kevin obviously talks about that extensively as well, you know. But um, he, when he first went to Newcastle, obviously, um, it, it, I think it, it raised a lot of eyebrows, put it that way, because obviously he was dropping down a division. Um, but, but I think when he speaks to Kevin for a long, well, when he gets to know him properly, you know, his, he, he's born in, in Doncaster, he grew up in South Yorkshire, but he will tell you that he always felt a part, a part of, um, a part, a sort of a strange part of Newcastle. I kind of know what he means slightly, because my, my dad's Scottish and I kind of, I was born in England, but I kind of, you know, all my relatives were Scottish, and he, you know, he had the same thing with Newcastle. You know, he remembers that when his dad was around, other Geordies, like how his accent, how his dad's accent would suddenly pick up. And, <laughs> you know, so he, he was always fascinated, I think, by by the by Newcastle United and by you know all these sort of stories he kept hearing about the football fans and everything. So, so I just think that he he felt it was a natural thing that at some time that he you know he would end up he would end up there basically. So. Um, I think at the time it was, you know, a, a very questioned move. You know, why, why is England captain dropping down a division? But he always made um, decisions for himself. You know, people questioned why he was going back to Southampton from Hamburg. You know, people couldn't understand why, why he would want to go to a club of Southampton size when you know there were talk that Liverpool were taking back. But he, you know, Kevin, being Kevin, being his own man. He like he, he went to Southampton because he thought that he could he could win the league with Southampton. It would be better for him to win the league 
with a smaller club than it would be for a bigger club. You know, it's like, I suppose a little bit like Leicester have, have done in the last few years. You know, it's, you know the Liverpools and Man United used to win the league almost, whereas someone like Leicester or, or in those days at Southampton would never have done it before. So, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, he, he loved it at Newcastle. He says that you know he'd never experienced, you know, he'd, he'd obviously had form of hero worship I suppose it is other clubs but it was different at Newcastle he said the noise was different you know at Anfield you get it all from the cop it's a, at Newcastle he came out with a great line about it's like being in a, a sort of stereo sort of surround system because it basically just came up from everywhere you know around it. so you know he. I mean I mean, first goal he scored he jumped in the Gallagher didn't he <laughs> so you know he, he um, I think he quickly sort of embraced um, the, the Geordie courtship probably because he always felt that he was a bit of an honorary Geordie you know he 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 wasn't born in Newcastle but he, he always got it if you know what I mean yeah I definitely know what you mean and uh, he, he comes back as, as a manager when the club were were in dire straits I mean there's been all sorts of speculation since about what would have happened if we hadn't stayed up that season um, yeah. that when, when he kept us up but that that period I presume you cover, you cover with him um, between retirement at Newcastle and then come back as manager um, you know it, it, it always seems strange for me looking back and I presume you're the same uh, you know that, that he wasn't kind of you know what you know Frank Lampard's just gone straight into a managerial position and it, it seems very much to be a, an easy step these days but you know he, he spent a few years out of the game didn't he and it, it, does he go into the reasons uh, why he was, well he was living in Marbella and he was literally doing well he was just doing he was living in an amazing place and you know just enjoying the sunshine playing golf most days, sort of having a swim, you know, going for a jog in the morning and and basically just sort of unwinding from the grind of professional football, you know, because because to be in that position where you're always the kind of number one, you know, you're you're the superstar for want of a better word, you know, I think it is quite mentally tiring, you know, it's always you they need at the press conference, it's always you that the T V want to interview, it's you know, it's always every game, it's always you that the the people want to you know, you have to you have to justify your Reputation, so I, I think that probably is quite mentally sapping after all that time. Even for someone you know who's got exceptional energy as Kevin has. Um, but yeah, I mean, I find it, it, it's almost unheard of now. You know, he had seven years out of football, um, and in that time, he pretty much turned off from football. I think he would he would know the big results, and he would know who won the league and who was going for the league and who might be get, about to be relegated. But he wouldn't he, he wouldn't know, you know. He was on a great run of form, or, or he, you know, or, or every resort from the sort of, you know, all four divisions, etc. When he came back to Newcastle, you know, he actually admits that basically he'd heard of like two or three players, but he, but a lot of the players just just were, just were names to him, you know, just ha- had no idea who they were, whether they were any good. And then it was a case of well, normally you sort of ask your staff, but he's like, well, I didn't know who my staff were either. So <laughs> so it's comp- so he completely he was parachuted in completely. You know, he had his football knowledge, and obviously he had that incredible sort of energy and drive and ability to sort of get get. You know, I think when you have Kevin Keegan, players would want to impress you. You know, so I can see why. I can see what you know. He had things going for him, but also it's still extremely unorthodox. I would say for someone you know to be put in that position when when they're literally sort of looking down a list of the squad list, thinking, well, I don't know who he is. And, uh, you know, for the vast majority of the players. And then obviously you look at you look at the results, you know the way the way things picked up. I mean, obviously you know it came incredibly near to to, to, to that relegation, 
as Kevin tells it, he was told by the people above him that Newcastle would fold if they went in the third division. Yeah. I think I think he believes that with the with the size of the fan base, um, if, you know that 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 he I think he he always thought you know well, I think he always hoped that that wouldn't be the case, but it was you know that was for John Hall who knew about business and knew about you know what companies need and. And, and that that was what he told that is what he said to Kevin Keegan. So you can imagine the pressure that was on in that, you know, when he when he took over from Ozzy Ideas to keep them up. And obviously, you know, he had a honeymoon period and then I think they off the top of my head I think they then lost five games in a row and went back into the relegation places. So, you know, it was it was touch and go right up to the last game of the season, wasn't it? At oh, yeah. So, you know but yeah, and then obviously, you know, when he came back for the start of the next season He's writing his program now straight away that you know we want to get promoted and win and win the Premier League. So, you know that that's 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 Kevin's attitude basically. <laughs> you can imagine people reading that thinking, what is he talking about? But you know he, he very he very nearly did it. And the same the same the next season as well with promotion. Um, there's a famous yeah. bit of footage. I think it's it's football focus when he says you know Man United where. <laughs> We're coming for your type thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- well, he wrote it in his. I've seen the. You know, I look through his little program notes, and you know, he's talking about this place will take off better than Liverpool. You know, this thing. Well, Liverpool. You know, I was brought up with Liverpool winning everything, and you know, we just it was like a reluctant acceptance. With, you know, I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. That Liverpool will probably end up still winning everything, and you know, so so he was kind of focusing early on on Liverpool but then obviously what he hadn't accounted for was that Man United would then take over from Liverpool um, yeah. so in a, so to be fair he was he was kind of true to his word halfway because he basically said you know we, we will overtake Liverpool which is you know which is what Newcastle did briefly oh, yeah, uh, yeah. but obviously you know there was still the, the uh, Alex Ferguson um, emphasis at Old Trafford really so um, yeah. unfortunately he couldn't, he couldn't properly get the better of him I mean, even last night, this is how well Keegan's side, early side, I still thought of last night, Phil Neville on Match of the Day 2, said he thinks Wolves are the best team ever promoted to the Premier League. And well, <laughs> well that, that pissed me off as well, because right. <laughs> I, I, I've just told you I'm a Nottingham Forest fan. We yeah. finished third the year after you finished third. Right. So you came up, I think you, I think you actually outscored, I mean, I haven't got the league table in front of me, I think you actually outscored Man United that year, who'd won the league, and finished third. We then came up the next year, finished third, and possibly could have even finished higher. But Stan Collymore, our strike, you know, was basically just ripping up the entire league. Was injured for a month, um, and then I saw, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, Wolves have done really well, but they're tenth. They played six games. They've won two of them, and basically, all of a sudden, they're the best team uh, that's ever been promoted in the Premier League era. <laughs> thinking, well, I mean, I think Ipswich finished fifth one year. Yeah, you know, if Wolves just... can finish third, third or third or fifth. Then, I, then maybe I'll um, I'll come back on and uh, apologise. But <laughs> I just, you know, I'm just watching that, thinking, you know, what, you know. I mean, so I, I did actually look and feel, and feel because I thought Phil never when my my team actually won at Old Trafford that season. <laughs> and uh, I did actually look last night. Cause it irritated me so much to see if Phil never played, but he, he didn't do. His brother did, but Phil didn't. Nice. <laughs> and and I suppose what one of the one of the things I think Newcastle fans will be interested will be looking forward to this book. It's not all negative because there's the immense success that that Kevin had finishing, like you say, third, sixth, second. Um, in that particular that second, does he? Do do you manage to go to go to much detail? Not obviously a, a lot of people know what happened. I'm sure there's some extra insight, but how he kind of reflects on that now because I mean I think it was what it was twenty years. 
um, two years ago, uh, 2016, and there was a lot of local media in the northeast about it's 20 years since we blew that title. Um, yeah. How how has Kevin kind of react on that 22 or feel about 22 years on? Well, uh, I'm sure it will always be the biggest regret of his professional sort of life, but. The way he is, I don't think he's also the type of person that sort of sits in the dark room, you know, sort of shaking with kind of the bitter, mem- you know, of blow- blowing the, the, you know, that 12-point lead and everything. You know, and, I mean, he does a lot of talks now and does a lot of sort of business company days. And, I, uh, you know, I, I get the feeling he, well, you know, he, he will always, one of the things that's most likable about him is that he, he's quite happy to laugh at himself. So, you know, he always, I think he includes a few jokes about the, you know, the Love It rant and, <laughs> you know, a couple of sort of little little pokes at Alex Ferguson and things like that. So, you know, he's a, I think he's very happy, basically. And he's got, as I said earlier, you know, he's got a, a lovely family around him. Gene's, Gene's wonderful. And, you know, I mean, when he looks back on his career, that's obviously a, a major regret. But... I don't feel like he should look back on his career with a regret when you look at what the, his achievements and what I was saying earlier about you know the fact you can actually use you can actually need two books to write his autobiography. So, but yeah, I mean they 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 were great. I mean, funny enough, when he mentioned about them finishing six, you know, he would he would regard that season as a as a total failure, basically having <laughs> having finished third the year before. Um, you know, but I mean, he set incredibly high standards there and. You know, we we cover the whole sort of, um, you know, obviously the the championship chasing season. Um, you know what went wrong and what you know and why he kind of um, how can I put it sort of lost his rag on TV and um, you know all the Andy Cole stuff and you know just just um, just just you know his recollections of that era really. You know it's all covered in you know there's, there's I think there's four chapters on on that on that era because I think. Despite the fact that he, um, you know, managed England, um, he managed Manchester City for four years, which is longer than anyone since Tony Book in the 1970s. Um, and obviously, you know, he won all, everything that he won at Liverpool. I still, I, I think it's very, it's pretty obvious that Kevin is known for first and foremost because of that sort of legendary period as manager when, you know, you obviously came within a whisk of winning the league. Um, and obviously when you think... As I say, when I talked about earlier being a bit educational for me, you know, I kind of forgotten where you come from. You know, and I know you, you know, you were promoted, but but just to have, you know, to, to have picked you up when you were when you were basically sort of, you know, down and down in danger of dropping into the third division, and just hearing some of the stories about what he inherited, and you know, basically, you know, nobody wanted to, the players that he identified as deadwood and needed to move out. Nobody wanted to buy them, and yeah. the, the state of the state of the training ground. Um, just you know, he, he came in at, when the club was on its on its arse basically, and you know, look at where he then took you know, just an incredible journey basically, and um, you know, it was I can um, you know, cause I, even as a non Newcastle fan, I think everyone everyone can remember that that era really well. Yeah, uh, definitely, and and that you know that the championship season, even even the season we finished sixth, it's still really fondly memoried with the, the crazy European games and trips. Yeah. First ones for de- decades as as uh, as Finney Castle United and um, everything that you see now, I'm sure that you you'll be aware. And hopefully, uh, he's aware that like you know the 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 massive football stadium in the in the heart of the city, one you know where European Cup rugby being there next year. That's all yeah. because of Kevin Keegan. That's you know they're, they're well, almost you know, I t- monuments I t- to him. Not, wasn't using the times, but basically when when he went um, 
when he went back in, in I nearly called it fancy dress it wasn't really fancy dress but it was more <laughs> disguise you know he kind of put a flat cap on and because he, he, he went back he was invited to a leaving do and his first reaction was you know I'm not, I can't go to St James's Park I'm not welcome you know I, I, I you know, didn't know what to expect etc etc and, and, and sadly he didn't really want to be there because obviously you know it's Mike Ashley's name above the door and that's what, that's what he associates it with for now um but anyway, so he, he was persuaded to go to his event, and um, and he tells this sort of story about him, um, you know, he turned up in, you know, smuggled himself in, basically, you know, with his collar turned up, and, you know, sort of talks about, like, you know, kind of walking in the shadows, and, you know, parking his car sort of in a little back street, and sort of just making his way around in a, you know, very sort of surreptitiously to, to, to get in without being noticed. Um, even though basically as soon as he'd been in there you know, a member of staff noticed him straight away but uh, but anyway he tells a story about going up to you know to, one, to where this event was taking place in one of the suites and, and he sort of found himself um, and he's not really one to sort of go back places anyway Kevin but he found himself looking at, looking out, out of the out of the sort of window of this you know I imagine it's some sort of like executive suite onto the pitch and basically you know like football grounds at night time when, when they're empty they're quite <laughs> quite kind of emotive places I think he kind of got lost in his own thoughts and was just sort of reminiscing about you know he said he was sort of thinking about all sorts of funny things like you know does the pitch still have a slope he said you know when you're in the dugout you can see a slope that I've never noticed from having never been in the dugout but and um, and one of the other guests came over to him and basically I think he realised that you know Kevin was having a bit of a moment sort of you know looking out on this pitch in the stadium and the and the guest said to him, you know, that, that, that this this place is because of you, basically. And Kevin was just, you know, kind of, you know, quite humbled that this what this guy had said, basically, you know, just this just little comment said that, you know, this this would never have been here without you, know, like it is now, and you know, like it is now is a fantastic stadium. Even now, I keep being told that um, it's a bit looking a bit grimy around the edges at the yeah. moment, but essentially, you know, it's a great stadium. Um, and you know, you know, and it, it, the floodlights were on. You know, so the pitch was lit up, and and this, just this little comment that, that one of the fan, you know, made to him sort of really, really stuck with him. So it's quite a nice sort of nice story the way he tells it in the book. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. And that's, that's spot on. It's it's it transformed a city. He, Kevin Keegan, transformed a city in a region. Um, you know, post-industrial place having a tough time in the late 80s early yeah, 90s and, yeah. and he, he you know for me and for most people listening he's, he's, he's the most important man in Newcastle United's post-war history and possibly the city of Newcastle even away from football in terms yeah. of what he's, well, what he's saw, created um, George Corkin who, who is a really good mate of mine and not only that I think everyone probably would, would say you know just an incredible writer yeah, and definitely. the first person that people probably turn to about Newcastle news and comment I saw him this morning and writing, you know, I mean, Kevin Keegan should have a statue outside yeah. at James Park. Now, Kevin would never dream of saying that. And, um, you know, uh, but, you know, George can obviously say it because he's, you know, he's, he's got his freedom to write what he wants. But I just, you know, I just thought, well, well, yeah, you know, basically, you know, bearing in mind that the man's status in the city and, you know, it, but obviously... You've got you've, what you actually what you've actually got, and when we're talking about statues. I mean, what you've actually got is an owner and a regime that basically, where he you know describes himself as unofficially banned and doesn't you know just has to wear a disguise to get in because he because he talks about not know not genuinely not knowing whether there'll be a hand on his shoulder saying you know clear off. Yeah. So you, you couldn't um, 
you couldn't really make it up really what some of the stuff that uh, you know some of the stuff that, that, that's going on and um, I mean George also made the point it, it, I suppose with the Ashley stuff the, it, it's not just a historical document because it's still going on you know yeah. what the the the, um, the the very unorthodox way of running a football club is still happening now so so you know the two things are actually directly linked aren't they definitely and there's you know, Kevin Keegan, fans have always said Kevin Keegan just gets Newcastle, the football club, yeah. the city, the people. And like you've correctly said, that's probably because of, of his family heritage. And there's a, yeah, there's his a, grandfather was, um, you know, a hero in the... I'm sure you know all the history. Yeah. His grandfather was a hero in the um, in the Stanley mining disaster. You know, sort of was pulling people out. And, uh, you know, and there's a poem written about him at the time. So, I mean, you know... It, it, you know his um, his family go back a long time. They you know they came down from they came down from the northeast. I think his dad was looking for work. Basically, you know so there was the, one of the collieries in in South Yorkshire had more openings. Basically, you know which was quite a common thing. I think there's quite you know where I'm from in Nottinghamshire. There's a lot of um, a lot of the miners who came down um, were from the northeast. So you know so so yeah you know he 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 definitely has very strong links with the northeast and and he and he does just get it you know he just he just you know he, i think i don't think he's had to try and learn i think he just gets it you know which is quite a rare and, and you know nice thing basically Definitely, and there's a, there's a clip on YouTube which I'm sure you've seen, and my memory escapes about whose testimonial it was, but he came back in the mid eighties um yeah. and basically give a, a very honest former player interview in the tunnel about the state of the ground, the club, players being sold, yeah. fan unrest, boardroom, and it's quite scary that 30 plus years later, it, you know, I watched that video and it basically describes the current, the current malaise at the club. So he's, he's, yeah, it's, yeah. He, he, Kevin Keegan, throughout his life almost, has got what's going on at Newcastle. But one of the things I'm really keen to, to read in the book, Daniel, is um, there's, I know obviously the serialisation is about the intensely negative stuff, which is raising a lot of questions about yeah. you know the ethical practices at Newcastle United. But when Keegan came back as manager, I, yeah. I I think that there is not enough credit given for what he did in a football sense because that team was horrific under Sam Allardyce. Now I've I've heard people on various uh, talk shows, football news stations who Newcastle fans don't tend to listen to um, saying that Sam Allardyce you know that Sam Allardyce was sacked and Newcastle were relegated which isn't true it's a common misconception yeah. he got that team playing some tremendous football by the end of the season it was a tough turnaround I mean there's yeah. a 4-1 win at Spurs um, Redden were hammered at St James's Park there was some really notable like in a very short space of time he turned Sam Allardyce's disastrous Newcastle side which in my opinion was headed for relegation into, into something of a football team which was playing really good football and the start of the next season we'll go to European champions Manchester United newly crowned European champions Manchester United and with a better team and get a 1-1 draw yeah, d- yeah. D- does Kevin and, and did, do you have a chance in the book to maybe even like try and address that because the, you, know, you always hear Kevin Keegan Newcastle is a great example of don't go back well that's it's actually don't go back it's got nothing to do with what he achieved in a football sense it's all yeah. this other stuff you talk about and I think he kind of gets a hard time for he went back he'd been out of football for at eight years or whatever it was and it, it, to me it just it just wasn't true are you able to kind of go into that with them in the book or is it very much concentrated on what went wrong in that no no we'll spell? go into that as well I mean when I talk about Kevin gets it I mean he, he wouldn't be critical of Sam Allardyce but but he but he also he I mean he also made it clear just in a, in a polite way of saying it, I suppose that he knew he, he, he understood why the Newcastle fans wouldn't embrace that type of football 
and he and going back he knew that they would embrace his type of football you know basically um, you know Newcastle fans didn't wait until Saturday every week for, for you know a dour nil-nil draw or someone trying to get like a one-nil win with you know with the tactics that Sam Allardyce was using and, and that was fine with him because you know I mean, there is a bit of a misconception with Kevin that every game was four three, <laughs> you know, which isn't true at all. And he, get, you know, I think I think he always says it. You know, the number of times people come up to him and say, "Oh, I remember that four three and and the fact, and Kevin has said, "Well, actually, Kenny Dalglish was manager then." And so I think he only had four two four threes in his life at Newcastle. <laughs> and the other thing about he his teams couldn't defend was just another absolute myth. You know, if you look at the um, when the, when in the year that United came back from. Sorry, Manchester United, I should say, yes. came back from um, 12 points behind. I think Newcastle finished with two goals worse off. Um, you know, it's, and, and, and told the last week of the season, they both conceded the same number of goals. So, so there's a, a, a slight misconception, but ultimately, his team were known as the entertainers. They were a flamboyant side with, you know, he would always go for attacking play. I remember when he came to Manchester City and he was playing Sean Wright Phillips as a, as a right back. And one of the coaches said to him, how, how do you expect a teenage kid, you know, as any, a young lad then, a teenage, the smallest player on the pitch to be to be heading away back post headers at corners? And Kevin thought, well, I, I see it more that he would be a brilliant overlapping attacking right back, you know. So, you know, all the, you know his full backs at Newcastle were always deliberately attacking minded players. players. Um, so, so, yeah, so he knew that, you know, going back, he wanted to... Um, he wanted. I mean, basically, he was at a much, much, much better starting point than he was yeah. when he when he first. So he so he thought it was going to be better than the first time round, and they didn't do too badly the first time round. So by better, what he's talking about is he was he was thinking, you know, if I get the team playing like we did do a few years ago with the start, because he, even though they weren't playing good football under Sam, when you go through the squad, they actually had you know he had some good players. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it, it was half. There was the makings of a half decent team there, and they, you know, you weren't in the bottom three. I think you were something like 13th or 14th, perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't a proper crisis, and the team wasn't, you know, you weren't devoid of decent players, basically. So, you know, so he, he went back basically thinking that I'm going to win the league here, or I could, or I'm going to go for winning the league. I don't think he'd be that presumptuous, but he's, he, that was certainly his intention, you know, aim, aim as high as possible. Um, it's not come out yet, but, you know, the players he wanted. Were elite players basically, and he was he was made to believe in his first talks with Mike Ashley and you know Tony Jimenez and Dennis Wise, and that basically they were you know they all they shared his ambition and and his vision of what Newcastle could become. You know, don't get me wrong, Mike Ashley said to him, you know, he's not a Roman Abramovich, but equally, you know, to well the, the way it turned out, he didn't you know to say he don't think he. He explained it was going to be like that either, but anyway. But um, but yeah, Kevin had great, exciting plans. The players he wanted were players who, in his words, would have taken the roof off um, St James's Park. Um, and if people ever say that's a bit unrealistic, how could you, you know, how could you target, you know, world elite names? He, he would say, well, if I ever had that attitude, Alan Shearer would never have come back <laughs> to Newcastle. Sorry, he would never have come to Newcastle. So. You know, he, he was thinking positively, as Kevin always did. You know, this, again, this is the guy who, when you were just survived relegation to the old third division, was writing in his programme the start of the next season that he wanted to win the league and then win the league above that as well. So, 
you know, some people might scoff at that and, you know, find it all a bit, um, you know, a bit overly ambitious. But, you know, Kevin has shown in the past that he can, he can you know, he's not all talk, he can deliver. Definitely. I'm not going to keep you, keep you much longer, Daniel. Um, it's had your ages, but uh, finally, just, you know, on this this stuff, this, the serialisation which has come out, yeah. and you've said that barely scratches the surface of what's in the book. Um, it, it, you know, obviously, you you have to be careful about what, what you write um, because, you know, the people that run Newcastle United have, have banned people before they've they've taken on journalists before. Uh, it's fine, and, yeah, I'm quite, uh, yeah. I've um, been banned by Alex Ferguson before as well. So right. <laughs> It's all, it's all fine. I've actually been banned by Nottingham Forest as well, which is my own team. So, yeah. um, but it's I mean that's, a, that's unfortunately it's just a consequence of the job really. So it's it's all fine, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. We got yeah. a question. I was just there, I was I was just going to say obviously everything printed is true. Why, why do you think um, Kevin's kind of is Kevin deliberately waited to, to tell this story, or is it something that he? He didn't want to tell, but like obviously the revelations today that have been in the Times about the South American as players being signed for South American agents as favours. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure on Premier League rulings or, or player rulings and stuff like that. Do you think that the stuff that um, is going to be released when the book is out next week? Um, do you think that there will be serious questions asked of the people running Newcastle United more so than that already is? Um, yes, because um, when I said about scratching the surface, there, there's, um, I can understand entirely why the Times went, you know, the Times today have theorised about the the section involving, um, you know, the two players who were, who were brought in as a favour for a couple of South American agents, and I can understand that, but equally I'd say that most Newcastle fans would know about that, so, so it, it's the fuller version, and it's... Um, you know, it's more it's a more in depth version of Kevin's thoughts on the subject, but I don't think it's um you know, I think most most Newcastle fans knew that, you know, that was the crux of um one of well, one of the issues that came, one of the big issues that came out from his tribunal. But there's so much around the edges um that hasn't been used that you know, just just so many damning kind of um, little pieces of detail that, that you, you know, when you when you see, you know, the I mean, backstabbing's one word for it. You know, he's been lied to. Um, people have apologised to him and then done exactly the same again. Um, you've got people in very high positions there who will, who will, um, you know, be exposed for telling stories that aren't true. Um, it's probably the politest way I can put it. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of. Um, um, anecdotal stories about other players that I mean basically the, 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 the big fallout was about um, transfer policy and Jimenez and Wise ganging up together and doing things behind Kevin's back and basically Kevin Kevin almost being a passenger really while, while they it completely ignored and mar- marginalised him but um, um, but there's also so many other details that just sort of really really embarrassing detail I mean if I you know I mentioned the you know, one of one of the things that, that has come out that I can that I can mention now is just the thing about Tony Jimenez. You know, the, this guy who was a, a steward at Chelsea, um, you know, then went into the property world, whatever that means. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, and then you know somehow got in with Mike Ashley. And Mike, there's, a, there's a bit of a history of this where Mike Ashley seems to appoint mates or mates of mates or cronies, you could say. And 
you know, he basically gave Tony Jimenez this incredibly important position of um, vice president player recruitment was the official title. And, you know, one of the jobs was to bring in a centre-half and, you know, during transfer discussions, it turns out that Tony Jimenez, you know, this so you know self-proclaimed football expert who, by the, by, by the sounds of it, was very, very sure of himself and liked everybody about all his contacts around the world and how he would make Newcastle a serious player. You know, he, he had never heard of Per Mertesacker. Yeah. Who, made, who, had, who had started, you know, he'd made his Germany debut four years earlier. He'd played in the World Cup. He'd played in every game that took Germany to the final of the year 2008. And I'd imagine at that time, even though maybe you think now when he looked at, you know, he wasn't so clever when he was at Arsenal in his last few years, but at that time was probably, bearing in mind his age as well, so he'd been quite young, and probably be one of the most sought-after centre-halves in Europe. And this guy had never met him, you know, even as a sort of, you know, in terms of football knowledge, you just think, well, you know, give me strength, you know. So, but but that, that, I can assure you that that is, that is far from the only story where you think, can this be real, you know? And Kevin actually says, you know, some of the stuff at Newcastle, you cannot make it up. Because <laughs> it, it's a level of kind of, and I'm sure you don't want people to use this word to describe your club, but it's a tragic comedy, you know, it's like a, a farce that's been going on there. And you just, and it, you know, Kevin said sometimes I'd have to try to laugh at it because, you know, I mean, at other times it's sort of, you know, he'd obviously feel incredibly down and depressed about it. But but even within two weeks of being there, you know, when you talk about his turnaround at Newcastle, if you, within two weeks of being there, there had been enough for him to, I'm, I'm amazed he lasted as long as he did. Because within two weeks of being there, he'd been massively let down over all sorts of stuff and he'd realised he'd realised very, very quickly that some of these guys don't know, I don't have a clue what they're talking about. You know, it was like proper amateurism. Um, and unfortunately, Jimenez and Dennis Wise, at that time, I think that's not the case anymore, but at that time, were thicker thieves, basically. And um, then they brought in Jeff Fatia, who, you know, again, was their man. And um, and then Derek Lambrice, and basically, they, they were ganging up on you know, it's Kevin's, I mean, Kevin, the tribunal ruled in favour of Kevin, but it was Kevin's, Kevin against quite a few people. <laughs> so that probably also tells you, you know, tells you about that, that regime. So ultimately, you know, the books should stop really with the, the owner, but I genuinely don't know how much interest and how much attention he's paying to it. That's a, a fitting note to finish on. Um, so thanks for your time, Daniel. I'm sure everybody Actually, listening yeah. to this will, will, will buy the book. It's out 4th of October. And um, yeah, best of luck with, uh, with your events going on and then we appreciate your time. Good stuff. Okay, nice to speak to you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.